commandment. Good morning, y'all. I am so glad that you are here this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 34. And so I'm going to read the chapter. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. You're welcome to read verse 1 and 2 on your own at your leisure. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. And then we're going to come back and set us up and make some observations. And we're going to hit the uh, applications of this passage, okay? Genesis 34, beginning in verse 3. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters uh, to us and our daughters. Take them for yourselves. Uh, you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell in it, trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price. And gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will make our daughters uh, and take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. This is a problem. All right, verse 17, but you will not listen uh, but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words please Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor uh, and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it for behold the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and, we will, and they will dwell with us. And all who uh, went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever else was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should we, he treat our sister like a prostitute? Terrible place to end a scripture reading. But nonetheless, this passage is given to us by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
to disciple the people of God who are coming out of Egyptian captivity. You remember the setting, right? You have the people of God who've been liberated from Egypt under the spiritual leadership of Egyptian idolatry. They have been enslaved all this time, and Moses is leading them out. And now Moses is discipling his people on who God is, how to love God, how to follow Him, how to obey His Word, what His Word is in the first place, and then how to apply that in loving each other as they love the Lord and loving each other as they love themselves so that they can be a witness to the nations around them. So that sets us squarely in the setting for Genesis chapter 34. Moses is teaching us something about the Lord, about his people, how they're to love each other and how to obey the Lord. So let's do this. Let's make some observations. I'm going to walk through the passage again. I'm not going to read it again. I'm going to make some observations from the passage and then we're going to dive into the applications because that's really where we're going to get to the meat of this passage today. As an overall title today, I, you guys know I'm very verbose. I don't do good with titles, but uh, and you're going to see this in just a minute. This is this is very helpful, and this isn't very verbose. I was very surprised. This came easy. And, and here's our, our umbrella we'll put over the passage today, and it's grace that is greater than all of our sin. And I think you're going to see that here in just a moment pretty clearly. Verse 1 to 31, an overall summary. Jacob has not led his family to be where they're supposed to be. In chapter 28, verse 19 to 20, the Lord reveals himself to Jacob, and Jacob vows to come back to Bethel right there. He named that place Bethel because the Lord appeared to him there and showed him who he is. And so he named it Bethel, the house of God. This is where God dwells. He said, I will come back here, and I will give you a tenth of everything I have. And then in chapter 31, verse 13, the Lord tells him to get up and leave Laban and go back to this land, the land of his kindred, where God revealed himself. And he gets up and he goes. God delivers him. And Jacob doesn't go back to Bethel. He doesn't go back to the land of his people. He goes to Shechem. So he's not led his family to be where they're supposed to be. And so therefore, they're not where they're supposed to be as he is not where he's supposed to be. In verse 1 and 2, we see Jacob not taking the necessary precaution with his daughter to let her roam around a people uncared for who God is going to depose because of their wickedness. Verse 3 to 4, Shechem has this weird thing going on where now he loves Dinah, although he's assaulted her. He now loves her and he wants his dad to go do the cultural thing of getting her to be his wife. Verse 5, Jacob eventually hears about the abuse. It's become clear here that this has happened at some time. In the past, we don't know how long. It's clearly not been a super long time. But he hears about what has happened. About the abuse of his daughter. And she's apparently stayed with them because she hasn't come home. And Jacob doesn't appear to be in any hurry hurry to do anything about it. Because his brothers don't even know yet. Or her brothers don't know. His sons don't know. Verse 6, Homer seeks out Jacob to soothe over Shechem's sin. Verse 8 to 10, Hamor now defends Shechem somewhat by justifying his behavior by saying, well, he loves her, as though that's a good excuse. And so he offers a marriage alliance between the two nations. And if you notice, as we were reading, the language is our two nations will become one. Now, if you've been paying attention, they're not to become one with any nation. Right? They are the people of God and they're to bear witness about the Lord, but they are to depose those who don't follow Jesus. So he offers a marriage alliance and they're to be one nation and they're to share daughters and flocks and land. 
And here's a temptation for Jacob to get what God has promised through means other than what God promised him to get them by. In other words, to get what God promised through Jacob's means, not God's means. And this isn't in the notes. This is free. But boy, that's a temptation for us too, right? To get God's things our way. And here's this temptation. We'll become one nation. You get land. We share sheep. We become a large nation. Verse 11 to 12, Shechem speaks up in passion and he offers a name your price deal. Whatever you want. I want her to be my wife. You tell us what we're supposed to do. We're going to do it. Verse 13 to 17, Jacob's sons answer deceitfully by accepting the offer on the condition that every male be circumcised. They know as a grown, not eight day old person, circumcision is going to put them in an incapacitated state for a season. And so they say, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. You just be circumcised, every male, using a religious ceremony as a disguise for their murderous intent. Verse 18 to 24, Hamor and Shechem uh, are sold on this idea. They like it, and Shechem is in a passionate hurry. He's feeling passionate about this situation. So they go and they sell this scenario to all the men of the city And they believe the plan. You notice verse 23, Hamor and Shechem have a little bit of deceitful intent and that they believe they can weasel Jacob's stuff from him in becoming one nation. They clearly didn't communicate to Jacob, but they're trying to sell their people on being circumcised. And I guess you better come up with a good plan if you're going to try to talk grown men into circumcision. You better have a good reason. So they're selling them on the idea they agree And all the men of the city are circumcised. And on the third day when they're sore, verse 25 to 29, Simeon and Levi slaughter all the men in a murderous genocidal attack. They do not respond with measured justice. Levi and Simeon plunder the city. All the males are killed and everything else is taken to use for Jacob's people. In verse 30 and 31, Jacob rebukes his sons not For the murderous genocide. But for potentially exposing him to attack from the other nations. Because of the severity of their response. And there seems to be no concern for Dinah at all. In any of what he said. Where's my daughter? How can I get my daughter back? Where's Dinah? Now we already saw in chapter 33. He's not that concerned with some of these guys. Because he put them up front. To receive the initial blow that he thought was coming from Esau and put his favorite in the back. So there's already this familial discontent. And here Jacob is not worried about the over abuse of his sons in response to what happened to Dinah. But he's concerned about being attacked by other people. So what in the world are we to do with passages like Genesis 34? Right? They're God-inspired scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? We believe that. That includes Genesis 34. And what in the world are we to do with passages like this? Well, remember, Moses is discipling his people on knowing the Lord. How to know the Lord, who God is, and how we are to love Him and obey Him, and how we're to be a witness to the nation. So what do we pull out of this passage to help us achieve that purpose for us today as the people of God? Number one, we got to remember, Jacob here is not the point. Jacob is not the point. The point is the Lord Jesus. 
The point is the truth that he is mighty to save and full of grace and kindness to sinners. How do we know that? Because of Jacob. Can I be frank with you? I don't like Jacob. I've never liked Jacob. From the beginning, he's a weasel. He's a scoundrel. He's a liar. He's a thief. I mean, he goes in and he fakes like his like he's his brother to his dying and blind father, steals his brother's birthright, flees to another place, weasels his father-in-law out of stuff, right? Lies about who he is, comes back and puts his children on the front lines thinking his brother's coming to get him. Well, maybe my babies can absorb the blow. You ought not like Jacob either. There's nothing in Jacob to like. He's the first millennial. He's absolutely borderline worthless. And so when we come to Genesis 34, we learn something very quickly here. Jacob's not the point. One of the ways we learn of the gospel is we see it through negative example in the Old Testament as well. You're going to see it in passages like the Levite in Judges who doesn't treat his wife right. And you're going to learn Jesus ain't like that. He's a good husband. He's Ephesians 5 husband material, right? And so you're going to see through negative examples and positive examples the gospel. This is a negative example. We're not supposed to see Jacob as a good dude. He's not. What you should see in this passage is Romans 9, 9 to 13. Let me read it for you. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And here's his purpose. I don't care what you believe about election. I really don't care. Just preach the gospel. All right? I believe in it because the Bible teaches it. We as a church affirm it because the Bible teaches it. If that offends you, I'm sorry. It's in the Bible. You're going to have to deal with it. Okay, I really don't care what you believe. Just preach the gospel. Okay, good, good. I ain't trying to. I just want you to see something, right? Here it is, right? So that God's purpose might continue. What's His purpose in election? Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. (laughs) That's His purpose. Why Jacob? Because he's a scoundrel. He's not worthy of saving. I like Esau better. Esau's a hunting, providing machine. Jacob hangs out in the tents with mama. He's a liar, scoundrel, cheater. In fact, in this story, Esau's the one who shows forgiveness. And he's not a God-fearer. He forgives his brother. I'd have been killing him. I'm a Christian, and if I were Esau, I'm coming with sword. You put your kids up front, fine. Boom, 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 boom. I like Esau. Jacob's terrible. But God loves Jacob. God picked Jacob because he is gracious and merciful and kind to sinners. So that when we read passages like this, we walk away going, there's nobody Jesus can't save. There's nobody Jesus can't transform. We don't arrogantly come to the gospel and say, I'm outside the boundary of God's saving. No, we come to the gospel and bow the knee and recognize, I am Jacob. I'm an unworthy sinner. There's nothing in me to like from people and from God. But I come to Jesus and I bow the knee. And I come to the cross and there I find mercy and grace to rescue me from my sin. That's what we see in in Genesis 34. 
So you shouldn't like Jacob. What you should see is lift your eyes and see the God who loves Jacob in spite of Jacob. That makes sense? So we come to Genesis 34. We see the God who loves Jacob, not Jacob. Don't get too caught up in the characters of the Bible. Remember, there's only one hero in the Bible, and it's Jesus. Everybody else, just like us, were characters in the drama of history and God's work on this earth to save sinners like Jacob and like you and me. And lest we think we're somebody, go read that passage and recognize we're no better than Jacob. There's nobody in this room who hadn't lied, cheated, manipulated, or scoundreled something. Right? Just like Jacob. And I'm glad Jacob's not the point. (laughs) I'm glad Jesus and his saving power is the point. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. There's nothing you do or I do to earn God's favor. It's freely given by faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Right? Number two, what we do with this passage. We remember this, believe this, that intact moral character is not a standard of how, how God uh, works graciously for us in salvation. Intact moral ca- character is not a standard that God has to put in place in order to save. Intact moral character is not something God demands of us on the front end. Intact moral character is not the gospel. Intact moral character will not save us. Nowhere, however, is Jacob's behavior condoned. God doesn't raise a hand and go, I witness to that. I testify to that. The exact opposite. Jacob is going to receive the consequences of his sin. But intact moral character is not something God demands on the front end. What we find is that God takes people with poor moral character and he transforms their heart, puts a new desire in them, puts his spirit in them, and he begins to work moral character out from the inside in a transformed life. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 9.5, Moses says it clearly to these same people. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written to the same people by Moses to teach them to know God, to love each other, and, and carry out the mission to the world. Here's what Deuteronomy 9.5 says. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. Their land. <laughs> God's clear. Not because you're good. But because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving out from before you. And that they may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Not because you're good, you're not. But because God is good and He made a promise and He keeps His word. There's nobody the gospel can't save. Let's not demand intact moral character from people on the front end. Practically speaking, all over our town, there's no one we would push outside and say, you can't come in here until you get your act together. That's anti-gospel. And in fact, what we do say is come all. Everyone come to Jesus Christ and bend the knee. And he will give you a new heart, a new set of desires that, will, that may have to work themselves out to the day you crawl in the grave. But come to Jesus and he will save and make right. Let's make sure we're a place that receives the broken, the Jacob's. Of the world so that Jesus may transform them. Invite them into your life. Invite them into this fellowship. That they may see and savor Jesus Christ. Number three. The devastating consequences of the fall in the garden. 
on humanity and family relationship is in full display in Genesis 34. It didn't work out too well for Adam and Eve, did it? The day you eat of it, you will die. And family relationships have been broken ever since. Human relationships have been broken ever since. The devastating consequences of the fall on humanity and family relationships and relationships between peoples and nations is on full display. The reason we fight individually is because of sin. The reason we fight in our families is because of sin. The reason we fight family to family is because of sin. The reason we can't get along is sin. The reason internation conflict happens is because of sin. The reason conflict happens between nations is because of sin. And we see on full display in Genesis 34 that sin has not worked out well. Choosing our own way didn't work good. Disobeying God never works for our benefit. Willful disobedience to Yahweh's command in the garden has not worked out. It's not working out in the moment and it will not work out into the future. Even go so far as to say here, not just willful disobedience, but passively allowing sin's tendencies to have their way never works out. It's not just willful disobedience. Sometimes it's passively allowing sin's consequences to just go unchecked. And it's like sin sometimes runs around going, who's going to check me? And we're like, not me. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want anybody to be mad at me. Uh." And sin just runs passively, rampant. Sin never works out good. It broke Jacob's family. This scenario that was created was Jacob's fault because he just let sin have its way. So passively letting sin have its way, willful disobedience hasn't worked out in the garden. And what you're going to see in the rest of the narrative of the Bible, it doesn't work out for anybody else either. Which is why Paul will say in the book of Romans, the wages, the payout of sin is death. Doesn't get any clearer than Genesis 34. And it results in the devastating genocide of an entire people. All because Jacob simply wouldn't go back to Bethel. I need to get my flocks up to full strength. So let's go back to Succoth. I had to be reconciled with my brother. So give him some stuff. So let me go over here and fix my problem. What, Bethel? No, I think we'll go to Shechem. No. No, 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 no. Which leads to point number four, observation number four. Jacob is reaping what he has sown and going to Shechem rather than Bethel as he was told he was to do and as he vowed he would do. He is reaping what he has sown. This is, just throw this on you here. Uh, reaping and sowing isn't karma. Okay? Um, trying to decide... Whether or not to take this tangent, I think I will. It's a worldview moment, so I, I think I'll, I will go here. Um, if you notice and pay attention to the world, you watch enough television, right? You should. That's how you can learn pop culture and what people believe. It's good to watch TV. Don't reject it, right? You need to watch some stuff. You know what people believe and think. And, and, and there's this sense in the world because God wired the world. It works the way it works because God wired the world. And people who observe it in other religions and give it different names or just recognizing how creation works. You tracking with me? Right? 
They're just attributing it to a demon, a false god. Tracking, right? So they have paid attention that whatever a person does comes back on them. They're not wrong. They just attribute it to a demon and it's off base. The Bible teaches us that God wired the world on reaping and sowing, agriculturally speaking, putting a seed in the ground, right? Put a peach pit in the ground. It grows a peach tree. And guess what comes off that peach tree? Peaches, right? Jesus said that that when you sow sin, you reap sin, right? You understand, right? God wired the world agriculturally and spiritually to work on reaping and sowing. Tracking? Make sense? Right? That that works in the spiritual world because that's how God created the world to work. And it works for us in Christ to our good. So that when we sow to the Spirit, Paul says, we reap the things of the Spirit. Right? That's right in Romans chapter 8, right? But when we sow to the flesh... We reap the things of the flesh, right? So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against these things, there's no law. Gorge on them. Eat them up. Liberally enjoy them. But the fruit of the flesh, right? And that's a big, long, nasty list, right? Whatever a woman or man sows, that will they also reap. Jacob is reaping what he has sown. He has sown deceit. He has sown villainy. He has has sown jealousy among his family. And should we be surprised in Genesis 34 that it has worked out as it's worked out? No, we shouldn't. Jacob is getting what he has put in the spiritual ground of his family. This makes me very nervous. Because... What I see in my boys is what I've sown. What I see in some of you is what I've sown. What I see out of my own life is what I've sown in disciplines and habits or lack thereof. Jacob is merely reaping what he has sown. And for us... We need to recognize what Moses was trying to teach his people. That if you sow to the Lord, the things of the Lord, if you obey these ten words of truth and apply them to loving each other in like manner, it will be life for us and we will be the people of God. We'll be a light to the nations and we'll achieve the mission. But if you don't, he tells them in Deuteronomy, these are the things that we will get because we have sown them. The principle works for us individually and in the church. When we sow to the things of God, we get God's things. When we sow to the things of the enemy, we get the fruit of the enemy. So let us not think, hear me carefully, do not mishear what I'm about to say. The gospel overcomes sin. And Jesus will save us in spite of us, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Amen? But let me tell you what God won't do for you. He won't often take away the fruit of your sowing. Hebrews chapter 12 calls it fatherly discipline. God in His good grace will allow us to reap the fruit of sin. To remind us that sin kills and He gives life. There is nothing like suffering because of my foolishness that causes me to not do that again. Tracking with me? It doesn't unsave me. 
Because it's not because of works, but because of Him who calls. But it certainly puts a tan on that hide and teaches me, don't do that again. So I say to us, Three Rivers Church, continue to sow to the world. Not like world things of the flesh, but the globe, the great commission, the work of the gospel for God's glory, disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. Invest in up, in and out that radical life. Walk with the Lord. Love each other in covenant community and reach out to the world beginning in Roman Floyd County. And I promise you, you will be a follower of Jesus Christ that produces and reaps the benefit of a global ministry. Continue to sow to that whatever happens. Whether it's three people here or 300 people here. Sow to God's glory among the nations. By being and producing radical followers of Jesus' life. In your private life, sow to that by being in God's word. And hiding it in your heart that you might not sin against him. Right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Those things produce life. We will simply get what we put in the ground. In the spiritual soil of our lives and our church, our city, and the world. There's so much more we could do there, but we'll move on. We're almost done. Number five. Nowhere here. Nowhere. Does Jacob seek the Lord's instruction or help? Go back and read it. Is there anywhere where Jacob goes, hey, wait a second. Hmm. I said I'd give him a tenth of everything. I hadn't done that yet. Hmm. We're in Shechem, not Bethel. Kind of my fault. Maybe. Maybe. Let's stop and see if the Lord will answer. How about we ask Him? Let's build an altar and let's all gather. Let's not eat for three or four days. And let's, let's get around and, and say, Lord, what do you want from us? Well, what would you have from us? Would you speak? Because we don't know what to do. Does He do that anywhere in this passage? No. He's flying by the seat of his pants, failing at every turn. And nowhere does he seek the Lord's instruction or help. It's not like he didn't hear what's missing from that discipleship equation we teach you. Obedience. He heard. He just didn't act. He didn't seek the Lord's help. Lord, I repent. I'm in Shechem, supposed to be in Bethel. Would you show me how to get out of this? Show me what I'm supposed to do. I can back this ship up. I just need you to show me how to put it in gear. It's not like he couldn't do that. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't seeking the Lord. Listen, listen. This is going to be a theme in Israel's existence. They're going to get themselves into all manner of things and they will not seek the Lord. Joshua's going to come up on this challenge. There's going to be some people recognize, we don't want to die. So let's get some old bread and worn out clothes and walk over the hill and tell them we've come on a long journey and we seek peace. And they did that. The Gibeonites, right? It's even in your Bible. It's called the Gibeonite deception. And I think it's verse 14 of chapter 7. I didn't put this in the notes. I'm going like, I think it's chapter 7, verse 14. Joshua, it said, and they did not seek the Lord. 
And the Gibeonites deceived them in making a treaty with them when they were not supposed to make a treaty with the Gibeonites. And it said, because they did not seek the Lord. How many times have we gotten ourselves in a spiritual, practical, all manner of pickle because we didn't stop and say, Jesus, will you show me what to do here? And Jesus, I will not let food pass my lips until you speak. Let me ask this. When's the last time you fasted because you just couldn't eat? Because it so absolutely wrecked you that you just weren't hungry until you heard from the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Jesus assumed we would do that. That's why Jesus said, when you fast. Not if you fast, but when you fast. When you run up on these moments in your journey with me. And it's quiet. You don't know what to do. Don't eat until you hear me. Now we're too prosperous for that, right? We know too much. We got degrees. I got money in the bank, Jesus. I can bail myself out. No, man. Nowhere does Jacob seek the Lord. And we look at this passage and we ought to go, you know what? Um, I ain't moving until Jesus tells me what to do. Spiritual hunger to know the Lord. Spiritual hunger to make Him known. Let's don't be like Jacob. Let's be like the Lord. I find it absolutely fascinating. I, you know, my Bible reading plan come back through the Gospels, get through the, the New Testament, the Psalms twice a year. So July 1, it started over back in Matthew. And I just find it absolutely fascinating that Jesus prayed. Jesus, fat. He's God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect unity, perfect relationship, the definition of the image we're created in. And Jesus had to pray and fast. Who do we think we are? Right? Jesus gave us the example how we are to live it out. And Jacob doesn't do it. I don't want to be like Jacob. Remember, I already said, point number one, I don't like Jacob. I don't want to be like Jacob. I want to be like Jesus, who is the point. Let's seek the Lord's instruction. Let's be quiet till He puts words in our mouths. You ever notice that we usually don't seek the Lord when we're running away from Him? You ever notice that when you're running, you don't pray? You ever notice when you're trying to ignore the voice of God, how you don't fast or read your Bible? You know what I'm talking about? You know. I ain't going to read that. I might hear the Lord. I don't want to hear the Lord. I can't keep going where I'm going. And then we get ourselves in a pickle and we're like, oh God, will you be gracious to me? And he's like, yes, I will. Oh yeah. Right? Seek the Lord first. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And I'll, I'll take care of the clothes, food, and water. Come after me first. Six, and finally, save this one for last because this one's fun. Perhaps, this is what Jesus' teaching sounded like in Luke 24.27. Let me read Luke 24.27 for you. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
been around here, you know this passage is one of my favorites because I, 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 I've killed. Luke doesn't give us that systematic teaching. It's not there. Probably too long. <laughs> right? He just said, he, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, meaning those who were with him there, in all the scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, all the scriptures. Oh my gosh. All the things concerning himself. This is the great discipline of Bible reading and Bible study is to do exactly what we've done this morning. is to see, see the, the dark, the negative, and the positive images of the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel and all the scriptures. Jesus did it for them. We didn't get a record of it. But maybe, just maybe, if you'll allow me a little bit of freedom with one sentence. Just maybe this is... What he said in Genesis 34. Just maybe. He probably didn't. But just allow me the interpretive freedom for a moment. Ready? Maybe it sounded like this. I am the completely obedient and faithful and righteous Israel. The son of God who obeys the Lord perfectly for you. I obey the father perfectly for you. I defend you perfectly and I represent you perfectly and I will care for you perfectly, unlike Jacob. Maybe that's what Genesis 34 sounded like from Jesus to those disciples. And the truth of the matter is, whether he said it or not, he is a faithful and good father. He is a faithful son who obeys the Lord perfectly For us, so that when he goes to the cross, he goes sinless, perfect in every way, having obeyed the Father in everything, so that he, as he dies at the hands of the righteousness of God the Father, he dies a perfect sacrifice in our place for our sin. And when he is buried and rises on the third day and ascends to the Father's right hand, he becomes the perfect, merciful, faithful Father and High Priest of a bunch of sinful Jacobs so that we come to the Father not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the perfect, sinless Son of God who did the opposite of Jacob and fulfilled the law of God for us so that our righteousness is found in Christ and not ourselves. That's Genesis 34 from the perspective of the cross. And so Three Rivers Church, I want to invite you to worship the Lord for that. These hard passages in the Bible are there not to trip us up, but to show us who Jesus is. And with just a little bit of gospel bent in our eye, we can come to those passages and see the the truth that God's grace is greater than all our. Now let's be like Jesus, not like Jacob. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you will help us to see and savor more of you in your word. That your word become a lamp for our feet and light for our path. And we truly would hide it deep in our heart that we might not sin against you. Lord, I pray that you would take your word this morning also. And use it to speak into the myriad and myriad and myriad of places in each of our souls that we can't even begin to address because we don't know. You know. 
And so as you promise, your word will not return to you void, meaning it will never fail to accomplish its purposes. I pray that even now, Genesis 34, Romans 9, Luke 24, Genesis 28, Genesis 31, these passages that have been read and expounded would find their way into the nooks and crannies of our soul. And that, Holy Spirit, you would do miraculous, supernatural things with your word in us. As individuals who are part of a whole. So, Lord, we entrust you to do something with that. We believe that you will. You said you would. And so we believe in faith that you're going to. So would you do that even now, please? And I pray that you will move us to worship well. I'm reminded of David who had music playing before the tabernacle of the Lord, before the Holy of Holies, 24 hours a day because you delight in music. You delight in song. And he appointed Heman and Jejuthun and all these Levites to sing and play instruments before you because you're the object of our worship. Now, Lord, will you take that truth and make us a choir of people who sing to you because you delight in it? That we would offer up something to you today that's of meaning and sacrifice that that's costly to us. We don't want to be we want to be like David. We don't want to offer a sacrifice that costs us nothing. So Lord, let us offer up to you the fruit of lips that bless your name because you delight in our song. So help us to do that well. We pray in Jesus' name.